This time on Poll Hub, our first polls of the election season in two of the biggest battleground states, Pennsylvania and Arizona, are out. We're digging into the data to see why some Trump-backed candidates are doing much better than others. Then, this being an election season, it's time for the election forecasters to roll out their models. So we're talking with the data editor at The Economist about their forecasting model for 2022. What does it show? What does it predict? And is that different from polling? Yes, it is. And we wrap with Lee's fun fact about growing old. Nope, I'm not taking my own bait. Stick around. And hi, everybody. Welcome to Poll Hub. I'm J.D. Dapper. I'm Barbara Carvalho. And I'm Lee Marinoff. We have been out in the States, so we were in Georgia and Ohio last week, Pennsylvania and Arizona this week, and have some really interesting results. These are really big battleground states. In both cases, again, like last week, we've got Senate races and gubernatorial races. The Senate races are so important to both parties because control of the Senate really hinges on, on some of these races. In Pennsylvania, for instance, that's a Republican. The senator there is retiring. And so John Fetterman, the Democrat, is running against Dr. Oz, the TV guy, for that seat. And we have that at 5144. Fetterman, the Democrat, in the lead among people who say they are definitely going to vote. And we'll explain the difference between that and just registered voters in a moment. On the governor's race, Josh Shapiro, the Democrat, is up 5442 over Doug Mastriano, the Republican. So, I don't know. Pennsylvania looks like a little bit out of the norm in terms of battleground states we've pulled so far in that Democrats seem to be doing pretty well. Yeah, I would, I would join in that and say one of the reasons for that is when you look at the name recognition of the candidates in the Senate race, Fetterman, the Democrat, is at 4539, which is a plus six in terms of his favorability, whereas Dr. Oz is down 21. So his numbers are upside down, including 51% who say they have an unfavorable view of them. And the same pattern goes in the governor's race with Shapiro at a plus 17, the Democrat, and Mastriano, the Republican, at a negative 14. And that's a race that, as you indicated, is, is, is quite wide. We also see in these contests that there's not a huge undecided or people telling us they're going to vote differently. Yeah, but I think what we're seeing also this time around is that people have really picked sides early. Uh, and so what we're going to really be focusing in, on is, well, what is the proportion of Democrats and Republicans that are going to head to the polls? And when are they going to do that? There aren't a lot of options in Pennsylvania. They they do have a mail-in ballot, but it's, a, it's an absentee ballot in a more traditional sense rather than what we see in some of the, the other states. So most voters plan to uh, vote on election day itself, something that we haven't seen in the in the last couple of years, given the, the changes that have occurred in these states during the pandemic. But one of the things that is also, I think, interesting to point out is that, you know, there was a lot of discussion of, you know, the Dobbs decision in June by the Supreme Court and the impact that that's likely to have, you know, in the midterm elections going forward. And although I think it's it's uh, motivated some Democrats. You know, what, what we're seeing is, I think, some idiosyncrasies, too, in each of these states. There's been a pretty significant campaign against Dr. Oz because of the fact that he 
doesn't live in the state that he's running for Senate or just has one recent house, I believe, but didn't have a, a voting address in the state, among, among other issues as well. And the appeal of Fetterman, which is more to the uh, traditional Democratic base. Uh, when we're looking at these numbers, we also see that the Democrats are still doing very well also in the suburbs outside the, the major cities, particularly the, the Philadelphia suburbs. And that can be more of a, a swing district. It had been Republican in past elections, but that's where Biden ran up You know some of the numbers that he had in 2020. And that is certainly a, a pattern and a trend that is continuing this time around. And explain why we're delineating here between or distinguishing between registered voters and people who say they're definitely going to vote. Because I, I, I want to point out that when we move from registered to people who say they're definitely going to vote, the race is narrow a bit. They do favor Republicans, the, the, the people who are saying they're definitely going to vote. Why are we doing that? And what does it say? Well, in, in times past, we've constructed more of a likely voter model to determine who's ahead and who's behind. But with the intense partisan polarization, I think what's really useful this time around is to be looking also at intensity. And right now, although we've seen numbers nationally and in many of the states in terms of registration for Democrats, I think what is interesting going forward is that Republicans may not like their candidates as much as the Democrats do, but they certainly are planning to turn out as they have traditionally in other midterm elections. Yeah. And Jay, we should point out that in your youth, you, I believe, were a political reporter in Arizona. I, I was. It was so long ago that none of the, these people were in diapers, the people who were running when I was there. <laughs> well, maybe not. So yeah, let's go to Arizona. This is different <laughs> than Pennsylvania. This is a little bit more like what we're seeing in Georgia and Ohio, where a governor's race is different from the Senate race. So in this case, Mark Kelly is the incumbent Democratic senator first term. There's two Democratic senators in Arizona. That That's rare in and of itself. Christian Sinema, Christian Sinema is the other one. But Mark Kelly is up among the people who are definitely saying they're going to vote 50 to 45 over Blake Masters. He is a guy who's been backed by some venture capital billionaires, uh, Peter Thiel. But all of these Republican candidates we're talking about are, are backed by Donald Trump. They are MAGA candidates. So there's some very different results here. It's worth pointing out that it's a 10-point spread among registered voters, 51-41. It is a five-point spread in Arizona when we say who's going to definitely vote, but Mark Kelly is up by five. The governor's race, that is a different story. So this is an open seat. Doug Ducey is the Republican governor now, and he is not running for re-election. Katie Hobbs, the Democrat, is down 45-46 among registered and down 46-49 among those who definitely saying they're going to vote against Carrie Lake. She was a TV anchor in Arizona, not when I was there on TV. I predated her, but she is up three points in this race among those who definitely say they're going to vote. So a big split here. People who clearly are saying, I'm voting for, for Mark Kelly, the Democrat, and I'm voting for Carrie Lake, the Republican. Yeah, and, and, and if we can drill down a little bit by region, the big county in Arizona is, is Maricopa County, and that's, that's where Phoenix is. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we're seeing there is in the congressional ballot question, the generic question, there's a five-point Republican advantage in that county. So in a sense, the fact that the Democrat Kelly is carrying that county by 10 points means he's going against a Republican current, which means he's getting some Republican votes. And in fact, Overall in the state, he's getting 12% of the Republicans supporting him, 
whereas Masters, the Republican, isn't getting any Democrats of any note. So in a sense, what we have here is an interesting geographic breakdown. You have the Republican Lake carrying Maricopa County by five, and you have the Democrat Kelly carrying it by 10. And then in Pima County, where Tucson is, the Democrats are both carrying for governor and Senate, that county by about 30 points, but the rest of the state, which is where the Republicans run up the score when they win, is in one case a 4%, uh, in the Senate case, a 4% advantage to the Republicans, and in the governor's race, 13%. So you have a real geographic mix and match going there, where in Maricopa County, you have, dare I say, a split ticket going on, as you alluded to. And that's kind of interesting, because we've had so much straight party voting in increasing numbers in these elections lately. And as you point out, Lee, that's the ticket splitting is not the case in the rest of the the rest of the state. We're seeing more uh, traditional trends there, but particularly in Maricopa County, Kelly can you know can Kelly can look to a huge gender gap, which also exists. And uh, obviously, voters are thinking differently about their senator and their governor. Yeah, so Maricopa is the biggest county in the state by far. So uh, what happens there often guides what happens in the state. I think un- there's two things that I see that are interesting here. One is favorable, unfavorable. Smart Kelly's at 50-43 among those definitely get a vote. Favorable, unfavorable. Blake Masters, 38-49. He's upside down by 11 points. But then you go over to the governor's race and you've got Katie Hobbs, who is a, a state elected official. It's not like she's unknown. Her favorability is, is good. She's up seven, to, uh, 46 to uh, 39 for those definitely voting. But uh, Carrie Lake is underwater, but only slightly, 43, 46. She has definitely shifted from her pleasant TV anchor persona to being an attack dog, and, and that may have something to do with it. This comes down, though, when you, when you kind of dig into the numbers, and part of this is clearly what's happening in Maricopa County, which we also saw in Georgia, where there's this uh, ticket splitting. But what really stands out to me here is what's happening with white non-college graduates in the split between the races. White non-college, 35% Katie Hobbs, 55% Carrie Lake. There's a 20-point advantage to Carrie Lake. There is a six-point advantage to Blake Masters over, over Mark Kelly. So those are the folks who are the ticket splitters. Those are the ones who are driving this, uh, I think. And uh, that's perhaps not a surprise. Blake Masters, not exactly the most mega guy in the world. He's very wealthy and uh, doesn't necessarily come across as a as a true believer, I think, to a lot of folks who might be thinking of splitting the ticket. Pollsters and election forecasters both deal with numbers and statistics and are generally in the same foxhole together during election time. Although they're often confused with each other, surveys and forecasting models are actually very different things with different goals. As pollsters were collecting opinions from people and voters, called primary research in the science jargon, because we're dealing with the actual collection of information from the individuals that we're interested in finding out about. Forecasters, on the other hand, may include polls, but then they could also be looking at so much more. So to provide us an inside look at what forecasters are doing this midterm cycle, we're joined by Dan Rosenheck, data editor at The Economist, to give us a better understanding of the election forecasting that's going on during this midterm. Welcome, Dan. Thanks for having me. So at what point when you're growing up, do you decide that you don't want to become a policeman 
or a race car driver, but you want to become a data scientist. I can't speak for the the general pattern of people who go into the field. I kind of came in through a sort of a back door. I mean, I run the Economist Data Journalism team, which obviously sits at the intersection of data science and journalism. And my my initial path was through via the latter route. I was originally a journalist by training. I worked as a foreign correspondent and as an editor. I've been at the Economist for a terrifying 18 years. And I sort of had a, a side hustle um, for a long time doing sports statistics, originally just because I wanted to like win my fantasy baseball league. And then I got a column at the New York Times writing about sports stats. And then I, and that was basically, I was basically sort of self-taught in data science that way and wound up doing a lot of sports forecasting and presenting at some conferences with some findings that at least I thought were interesting in that world and hopefully were you know, rigorous and robust and held up. And then when The Economist launched its data journalism team, I guess seven, eight years ago, I just raised my hand and said, uh, this isn't what I've been doing for you guys before, but I actually have this kind of entire other parallel career uh, as a quant, and it looks like it might be of some use to you. And they bit. And obviously I've, you know, learned a lot more and become a lot more uh, skill with all things and numbers, statistics and computer science since then, since now I get to do it full time. Yeah, you know, and that's not an unusual story because I think there are a lot of numbers folks, particularly those of us who are in the public realm that come from so many different backgrounds. And, you know, we we often say to our students that it's important to be a whole person, a numbers person, a good writer and communicator. So that's that's actually not not terribly surprising. But tell us what makes the Economist's election forecasting model for this cycle different from some of the other models that that we see in the news as well? Let's see. I mean, I would have to have pretty thorough knowledge of all the competing methodologies out there to say what's different. I mean, it's probably not that that different. I mean, there's roughly speaking, you've got a historical data set of every congressional election result going back uh, X years in time, you've got everything you would use to predict those results. So that's typically some mixture of quote unquote fundamental factors, like how the district voted in the past, maybe some demographics, maybe some fundraising data, whatever. And then you have polls where you just ask people directly what they plan to do. And you basically use some statistical techniques that we can expound upon to blend those together to find out what would have given you the most accurate probabilistic predictions historically. And you need to take extra care to figure out the interaction between what's happening in each individual race and the national political environment. And I guess one way that I suspect our model is different is that it's explicitly what's called a hierarchical model, which means that we first at the top level make a prediction for what we think the national popular vote for the House of Representatives will be using national level data. And then and we come up with 10,000 different hypothetical simulated universes that some of them are good for the Republicans, some of them are good for the Democrats, some of them are 50-50 and whatever proportions we think are most likely. And then in each of those 10,000 different universes, we feed those numbers down into the districts or states. And we then ask in each of these hypothetical national scenarios, how would this, how would this district or state be likely to vote under those conditions? 
And it's not always so simple or straightforward as what's called a uniform swing where a year in which the Democrats do, say, three percentage points better than your average expectation, they're just going to do three points better across the board everywhere. There's all sorts of interactions. You have some places that might be more what's called elastic, which is to say that they tend to be swingier in relation to the national environment or the opposite. Often, if you have places that have voters from demographics that tend to be quite loyal to their parties. So in general, that would be black voters for Democrats and evangelical Protestant voters for Republicans. The more, the bigger the share of the electorate that consists of those groups, the less those places tend to vary with the national political wins. And there's a bunch of other things that can be affected. The incumbency advantages, the size of that can vary based on whether or not you're in like a, a wave environment for one party or the other. And so each district or state gets 10,000 different predictions based on which national environment they're getting simulated into. And it's not just a uniform swing. In the polling business, we have margins of error and lots of other things that can introduce an accuracy. And we're constantly fighting the, you know, let's not get into such a argument over precision because we're in talking about ranges. What kind of precision do you, are you comfortable with when you run your, I guess, simulations or your 10,000 iterations? So it's a probabilistic forecast. You can produce a point prediction, which is just the average of all the simulations, okay. but your point prediction is almost certainly going to be wrong to a given number of decimal places. It will definitionally be wrong. And the measure of a good probabilistic forecast is its calibration, which is that your 55% events happen 55% of the time. Your 23% events happen 23%. Your 92% events happen 92%. And one thing that I think in the general public discourse tends to either get misunderstood or you really just have to hammer home as hard as you can, as many times as you can for people to process, because I think it's not necessarily intuitive is that underconfidence is just as great of a sin as overconfidence. And if you're saying an event is 70% likely, you are saying that it is not going to happen 30% of the time. And the idea that you got it right if your 70% event happens and wrong if your 30% event happens is a grave misperception. If in fact your 70% events happen 95% of the time, then your model is not right 95% of the time. Your model is terrible. So the benchmark that we look at is just the calibration that our probabilities are accurate, that historically when you predict out of sample, so you say based on all the other information I have, but not using any data from the year in question, what chance would I have given to this party to win this race or this party to control the chamber? And, and those probabilities need to match. And it's not, it's not something we can exactly put on a bumper sticker. <laughs> no, my, you know, my 54% events actually happen 52.6% of the time is the model of, is proof of an excellent model and as a very weak marketing campaign. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about what you're seeing right now in the, uh, in the 2022 midterm environment. So it's definitely looking like an unusually strong midterm for the president's party. 
if there's any iron law in American politics, it is that the president's party gets crushed in midterms. If I recall correctly, in 36 of the 40 midterms since the Civil War, the president's party has lost seats in the House. The average lost, I can't remember, it's dozens. And there's all sorts of theories for why this might be the case, but it is pretty metronomic. And if you look at Recent history, 2018, 14, 10, and 6 were all standard wipeouts for the president's party. That could still happen, but in the past, when those waves were building or looming, by this stage in the race, the evidence was clear. It was clear in generic ballot polling, which is when you ask people Mm -hmm. which party they want to control Congress or plan to vote for for Congress. It was clear in special election results. It was clear in polls of individual House districts or Senate races. And the clock is running out for that to change. Right now, Democrats are actually leading on the generic ballot, not by much, but, you know, a point or two, which is quite unusual for the president's party in a midterm. They had a terrific run in special elections over the summer, and and they're quite competitive in polls of individual races as well particularly in the Senate, where Republicans appear to have nominated some candidates who are sufficiently outside the mainstream that they may be on track to throw away some otherwise very winnable seats. So we are predicting at the moment a range of, I know the midpoint is exactly 50-50, like 50.1% of the national two-party vote for the House of Representatives after imputing missing votes in uncontested districts to the Democrats, which would be an extremely good showing for the president's party in the midterm, certainly the best since 2002, which George W. Bush's Republicans won outright just a year after the September 11th attacks. Uh, There's obviously some variance around that. I think it's roughly 48% to 52%. I can't quite remember, but it's in that ballpark. 48%, which we're seeing as sort of the best case plausible scenario for Republicans, would be more like a standard result for the president's party in midterm. What that translates to in terms of seats depends on the chamber. The House has obviously just done its round of redistricting. Republicans came out with an advantage from that process, but a much, much, much smaller advantage than they had 10 years ago. We find that in order to be favored to control the House of Representatives, the Democrats need to win 50.7% of the two-party vote. So there's a slight structural bias towards Republicans, but not that big. And that is why our model currently makes Republicans just under 70-30 favorites to flip the House. That means they are twice as likely to control the chamber as Democrats. But again, 30% events happen all the time. As a London resident, I say it rains on 30% of days in London. Nobody says, oh my God, it's raining. You were wrong. It would be completely within the realm of normal fluctuation for Democrats to manage to hold the House. So Democrats can be somewhat optimistic, but they better bring an umbrella, is what you're saying. (laughs) Yes. I mean, they are, look, they're underdogs. It is twice as likely that the Republicans will still flip it. But Democrats are extremely live, as we say. They have a completely plausible, realistic shot to hold the House, which did not look to be the case four months ago. And as for why the political winds have shifted towards Democrats, I mean, we know what's happened in the polls. It's much harder to explain what the causes are. Certainly, the Supreme Court adopts abortion decision immediately in its aftermath. Democrats gained in polls. They've started doing really well in special elections. And there's some intuitive nature to that. 
in that in general, if you believe in quote unquote thermostatic public opinion, as political scientists say, that whatever government is doing, public opinion tends to shift the other way. And, and in this case, it was actually the out party that had a big success in policy by virtue of getting the national protection for abortion rights overturned during a democratic administration. So I think what you're talking about helps people who are wondering about like 2016 with Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. There was a chance that Donald Trump could win, despite the fact that a lot of people thought the forecasts were going to be an automatic for, for Hillary Clinton. So in that case, it did rain on the 30% side of it. But let me just ask you, you said you got into this through sports. So I, I would like to know, we're, we're, we're talking to you on Wednesday. It, it could happen tonight. What does it look like the probabilities of Aaron Judge hitting at least two more home runs in the remaining eight games? Um I haven't run my numbers on that. I mean, he is roughly speaking, probably something like a true talent 40 home run hitter who's just had an unusually good year. <laughs> if we think he's if you think he's a true talent 40 home run hitter, then he should be hitting a homer roughly once every four games. So actually that would suggest he's right about 50-50 to do it at this point. It would have been <laughs> much, much, much more likely a week ago, but it's been quite a long homerless streak. Not sure if that's because he's getting pitched around or what, but it is much like Republicans' odds of holding the House. It is, you know, still probably more likely than not, but definitely no longer a near sure thing. <laughs> Thanks so very much. We've been speaking with Dan Rosenheck from data. He's data editor at the Economist Selection Forecasting. So good luck. And hopefully we will catch up with you again before, uh, before November. Thanks, Thanks very much. This segment of a fun fact this week deals with people who are growing older or anticipating that's not too far in the distant future. And CBS News 60 Minutes Vanity Fair in 2011 asked whether would you rather grow old in a city, suburb, or the countryside? And the responses were 16% initially in the United States said city. 21% said they would prefer to grow old in the suburbs. And the countryside really ran away with this one. 63% would like to grow old in the countryside, the bucolic countryside. Does that make sense, Barb, too? Because if you think about where people, maybe it's where they want to grow old, but everybody moves to Florida. Well, not everybody, but people move to suburbs and retirement communities that are not remotely countryside. It just seems like maybe this is what they wish for, but not yeah. what they get. Yeah, I think it I think you have a point there, Jay, because I, I I think that in terms of, you know, patterns that we see for retirement, at least retirement patterns, you're right. I mean, people want to go where the climate is more comfortable, where the amenities are easier to get to. And so there is a significant attraction to some of these to these other places that are perhaps more suburban rather than as country as conjures up by what we hear countryside. Perhaps there's a lot of urban folks who are just thinking that maybe they'll just move right out of the city border. And that, that looks very country compared to the, the subways and other hassles that can happen in a city setting. Seems like it would be kind of lonely, though. I mean, I live in the country. I live in a town where there's about 3,000 deer for every person and cows. And I just think that I, I don't think I want to grow old there because 
it's just so far to get to everything. Yeah, I was, was going to ask about the, the practicality of this. And right. Yeah. You know, the, the, uh, you know, now Barb uh, lives in, in, in a place which is also pretty rural and uh, northern suburbs outside New York City, but there's lots of horses for people. And you're not going to go riding your horse around town getting to services as you get very old, Barb. So what are your intentions here? I mean... <laughs> Well, let's see. Let's see. I'm just a short train ride okay. away from a major metropolitan city. And for me, that kind of is the best of both worlds because, you know, I, I think practically in terms of, you know, healthcare, entertain, you know, just being able to get around. So though you do need to drive and it is very quaint where I live, um, it's very urban in a hurry. So I don't think it's quite called a suburb because it is uh, so much. It's more an, rural, but it's uh, an urban me, rural suburb, Barb. You've got it. You've got I want I got it. I feel like I've got it both ways. <laughs> well, all three ways in that case. So, Lee, we'll give you the last word. If you uh, were going to grow old someplace, would you choose to live near a giant stadium or Yankee Stadium? Well, probably Yankee Stadium because they play more often. And I think that probably works. And I do like to go to Yankee Stadium as often as I can. And I would intend to do that because I'm not that far away and think how far your money would go in the Bronx. <laughs> That'll do it for this edition of Poll Hub. Poll Hub is a production of the Marist Poll at Marist College in Poughkeepsie, New York. Mary Griffith is our executive producer. Casey Schaff is our production supervisor. If you enjoy Poll Hub, please consider leaving a review. Positive reviews help other listeners like you find us. If you'd like to learn more about polling and survey science, Check out the Marist Poll Academy, our free online learning portal. If you have questions for us, tweet them directly to at Marist Poll. Remember, you can always tell your smart speaker to play Poll Hub, and with any luck, it will cooperate. Finally, wherever you listen to Poll Hub, there is a subscribe button. Click it, and the latest episode will be ready for you in your podcasting app as soon as we release it. We'll see you next time. <laughs>